Ephesians and where we find ourselves today in the text that was given me today is Matthew chapter 5 verse 6 where Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Let me, let me just stop and before we do anything else, let's, let's pray together as we enter this um, very precious text. And so, Father, I, I do thank you that in the midst of this very challenging time, uh, a time where we absolutely need your wisdom and discernment, we, we need your guidance and how to navigate it, um, I'm thankful that in the midst of it, even though we are quarantined as it were today, your word never is. Um, we, we read in the book of Acts that even though... Um, your, your word is, is in prison, as it were, by way of the, the disciples being sent there, that the gospel never is. The gospel can't be chained up. The gospel is living and active. The word is living and active. And so as we gather, um, as Westland gathers today in a, a variety of places, I'm so thankful that the word is going out and that the word will make an impact, that the word won't come back, as we already heard today, void and empty, but it will serve its purposes. And so I pray as we do open up your word today that you would pour your favor and blessing out on those who receive it and those who do, that they would not be distracted from it, that they'd have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying through it. And so I pray to that end and pray for you again, your guidance and your favor as we spend this time together. And I pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over the years, I've preached on, on large chunks of, of scripture, at least at times. I've, I've preached on two, even three chapters of the Bible and always managed to say what I needed to say when I have done so. Today, I only have one verse and I'm not sure I'm going to be able to accomplish everything that I, that I want to say today just because this text, Matthew chapter five, verse six, has so much goodness packed into it. So much goodness, so much relevance, um, and so much promise in it as well. Just, I mean, read it with me one more time. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and just hear the promise, for they shall be satisfied. It's quite the promise. Lots of promise. We will be blessed if we do this, and the promise is we will be satisfied if we do this. Do what? Hunger and thirst for righteousness. First off, what is righteousness? Let's begin there. It's an important word. The verse really hangs on it. So what is righteousness? Well, there are two senses of the word as it's used in the Bible. The first is an ethical sense, meaning it's a, a word that speaks of doing what is right, which makes sense because the word right is found right in it. And so Jesus uses it this way in other places specifically in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus uses it when he says and warns against, and you can see this in, in Matthew 6, verse 1, practicing our righteousness before other people to be seen by them. And in context, if you've ever studied Matthew 6, the activities that Jesus is referring to are things like prayer and fasting and giving. And so just based on that, we can say with assurance that righteous acts include, at the very least, acts like prayer 
and giving and fasting, and we know it includes a lot more than that, but that's the ethical sense of righteousness, the activities that we give ourselves to, but then there is a legal sense connected to the word righteousness, meaning righteousness is not only what one does, but what one is. And when we speak about the righteousness of God specifically, we obviously mean both senses. In other words, God acts as God is. God is righteous. And he always acts righteously. In fact, he is the definer of what is righteous. So those are the two senses, an ethical sense and a legal sense. One of the names of God, by the way, that speaks to this is Jehovah Sitkanu, the Lord, our righteousness. God has many names, and this is one of them. He is our righteousness. You can read about that in places like Jeremiah chapter 23. The psalmist writes, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. And so when Jesus is speaking in our text about hungering and thirsting for righteousness, he is referring to a hunger and a thirst for living in a way that is in harmony with who God is. But let me add this, and this is so critical for us to understand as we continue going through this text together, not only living in ways in harmony with who God is, but who we are in Him. Living in ways in harmony with who God is, but who we are in Him. That we are called to live righteously because we are righteous. Now, I emphasize this, and it's really important for us to get this on the front end. I emphasize this because just a few verses down from ours, if you just go down your Bibles, take a look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. He states there that unless your righteousness, my righteousness, your righteousness, exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That should cause us to pause. I mean, it's a daunting verse. Our righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And why this is so important is because if we see our call to righteousness as being only connected to our acts, then according to this verse, we're in trouble. According to Matthew 5, verse 20, we're in trouble if we only make it about those things that we do. Why is that? Because we can't outact the scribes and the Pharisees. We can't. They were all about doing what is right. In fact, they lived out the commandments of God to the, to the letter. The scribes and the Pharisees, in fact, didn't think the law of God went far enough. And so they added to it just to make sure that they stayed on the straight and narrow. The, the scribes and the Pharisees, they fasted two times a week. They prayed three times a day. They, they tithed down to their spices. They memorized, at the very least, the first five books of the Bible. Some memorized their, their Bible, the Old Testament. Some of them memorized the entire Old Testament scriptures. They, they Sabbathed meticulously. They proselytized with great fervor. I mean, have you? Do you fast twice a week, pray three times a day? Do you tithe all the way down to your spice rack? I know I haven't. And so we're in trouble if righteousness is only connected to your acts, if it's only connected to 
my acts. If, if that's the case, then, then I'm not saved and there's a good chance that you're not saved either. And so at least one of the questions connected to today is how can I be sure that my righteousness exceeds that of the scribes of the Pharisees because I want to enter heaven. Here's where we're going to go today, and if you like taking notes, um, you can follow along with me. This is going to be the basic outline as we go to our text. I'm going to highlight what I'm calling five dynamics of righteousness. Five dynamics of righteousness that come out of our verse, verse 6, chapter 5, but as well as they show up elsewhere in the Sermon on the Mount. And the, and the reason why I'm doing that is because righteousness and the whole topic weaves its way through the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of the key themes. In fact, I would argue that it is the key theme of the Sermon on the Mount. That the Sermon on the, on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7 in Matthew, hang on this idea of, a, of righteousness. So let me give you the five dynamics on the front end, and then we'll go through them one at a time. Here is the first. We will be satisfied with it. That's the first dynamic. We will be satisfied with righteousness. Number two, we will be persecuted for it. Number three, we are to walk humbly in it. Number four, we will be tested by it. And then finally, and, and, and very importantly, we will all fall woefully short of it. Let's look at them one at a time. First, we will be satisfied with it. This takes us back to our text where one more time Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. But satisfied with what? Really important question. Satisfied with what? Meaning, where does our satisfaction come from? Well, the answer is righteousness. If you and I eat and drink righteousness, we will be satisfied with what we are eating and drinking. This is key for us. For we can make the mistake of thinking that if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, then, then God will bring satisfaction from somewhere else. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He is saying that righteousness will satisfy in and of itself. Which is, and this is why I said on the front end why this verse is so precious, and why I said on the front end that it holds so much promise, because this is an over-the-top promise. Because all we do, all you do, all I do, every moment of every day is seek out satisfaction. Is that not true? We chase it. We want to live lives that are full of satisfaction. In fact, I will go so far as to say, to borrow from Jesus, we hunger and thirst for satisfaction. And here, Jesus promises it. Which tells us what about Jesus? What does Jesus give us in this? What Jesus tells us here is that he isn't down on our pursuit of satisfaction. He's not down on it. What he's fighting against is looking for it someplace else. For all other pursuits will leave us feeling less than satisfied. And God does not want us to be less than fully satisfied. But when I say that, I, I, I feel the, the need to ask, do you believe that? 
Do you believe that the God of the Bible doesn't want you to be less than fully satisfied? Because what Jesus is saying here is, I want, I want you to be satisfied. In fact, I promise you satisfaction. Here, here's why this is so relevant for us today. As I just said, we all hunger and thirst for satisfaction and we seek it out in so many ways, right? You could fill in the blanks on the ways that you and I seek out satisfaction, the way our world seeks out satisfaction. I mean, money, most obviously, but there are other things other than money, status, health, recognition, relationships, purpose, just a purpose in life, doing things that will make a difference, freedom, and so on. I mean, I think that's true in 99.9% of the people that we come across. If I just had more money, or, or if, I could, if I could find a spouse, or if I was doing something that could actually make a difference, I would be satisfied. But Jesus says you won't be, at least not to the depths and to the extents of the satisfaction that he promises. That there's a satisfaction that lies beneath the surface. There's a satisfaction we're chasing that all other pursuits echo and give an echo of. I mean, isn't that in fact what Jesus, if you... Some of you know this event. Um, if you don't, I'll try to piece it together for you. But in John chapter 4, Jesus has a conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well where he says to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, verse 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. See, what Jesus is revealing to this woman at the well and what he's revealing to you and me with this statement was that there is a thirst in this woman that had far exceeded her thirst for water and Jesus said, I can satisfy that thirst fully and forever. You see, could it be and you need to think deeply with me in this, at least to a, to a certain depth, and go a little bit beneath the surface. Could it be that our hunger and thirst for satisfaction that we seek in so many ways are, again, echoes of what hunger, that what we hunger and thirst for most of all and can only be found in God? So that's our first dynamic. We will be satisfied with righteousness. Here's the second. We will be persecuted for it. I, I take this from what Jesus says in verse 10 of, of Matthew 5. Let me read it for you. Jesus says there, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So put the two verses together. Put, put verse 6 and verse 10 together. We will be satisfied with righteousness. That's verse 6. That's true, right? We will be satisfied with righteousness while, take verse 10, while being persecuted for it. Welcome to the paradoxical miracle of the Christian faith. That chapter 5, verse 6 and verse 10 are both true. This too, however, is a wonderful promise. For it tells us that joy and satisfaction doesn't need to rest on the circumstances of life. Satisfaction and joy can be ours even while experiencing 
persecution. It's not, Jesus isn't saying that verse 6 is sometimes true and verse 10 is sometimes true. He is saying that they both can be true all at the same time. That we can have joy, we can have satisfaction, we can have contentment. While we go through persecution, oftentimes that persecution coming because we are living righteously which we see fleshed out in so many places, especially in the, in, in, in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5, verse 14, for example, or excuse me, verse 41, Luke writes there that they, meaning the apostles, after being persecuted physically and imprisoned, they left the presence of the council rejoicing, hear this, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name the name of Christ specifically. Now, before you throw out this this idea, throw it aside as sort of sheer stupidity, how can you say, Norm, that I can have joy and satisfaction while I'm going through, through persecution? And in fact, those two things coming from the same source, meaning as I pursue righteousness, I will be satisfied. As I pursue righteousness, I will be persecuted. And I can, I can marry those th- two things together. Before you throw that aside as, as sheer stupidity, let me ask you where you're resting your hope for satisfaction on. I mean, if I say I'm resting my hope of of satisfaction on this, and you're saying that's stupid, then let me ask you where you're resting yours on. I, I, I gave some examples of where we pursue satisfaction in our world today, just a moment ago, a job, money, a person, a more noble pursuit. My question is this, will it stand up when you encounter hard times? Because you know if you attain what you now hope for, you will still go through hard times, yes? So the question is, will those things that you pin your hopes on, will they stand the test? Again, if you're pinning your hope on more money, if you're pinning your hope on a, a person, if you're pinning your hope on a, on a job, degree, status, will those things stand the test when you encounter difficulty? To take it one step further, what if something happens to take away your money or your health or your freedom or your job? Like say, oh, I don't know, a global pandemic where something takes place that threatens what is most important to you right now outside of Christ. What then? Will you still be satisfied? Because things we work so hard for can be taken away pretty fast, can't they? In mere days. But in contrast, please hear what Jesus says. Please hear what Paul writes. Because what Jesus promises, what Paul writes of in places like Romans 8, is that not even tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, or COVID-19 can separate us from the security, love, and satisfaction of Jesus. Amen? Nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus, the satisfaction of Jesus, the security of Jesus. Nothing can snatch us from that hand 
But I would dare suggest that in our world today, if you're pinning your hope and joy and satisfaction on something else, our world can snatch it in just a moment. So again, I ask one more time, where are you placing your hope for satisfaction? And if it's not in Christ, will it stand the test of time? By the way, before we move on to our third dynamic, why should we expect to be persecuted for righteousness? Well, the, the short answer, but it's, a, it's an important answer, is, and, and I think a, a right answer, a good answer, is because this isn't our home. Um, we, we are exiles here. We are, we are outsiders for the same reason that if you're a Bernie or a Biden supporter, you can be expect to you can be expected to be persecuted by a trump supporter and vice versa we can expect to be persecuted because we live in the midst of those who currently vote with another party as it were and follow another leader and therefore we can expect to be persecuted when we follow the ways of a leader they're not following we can expect to be persecuted because righteousness shines light on dark places. And if you're a lover of the dark, you'll resist that light. In fact, you'll get hang angry at it. We can expect to be persecuted because we follow one who is righteousness embodied, righteousness in flesh, and they nailed him to a tree. And we're not greater than our teacher. So we can expect to be persecuted for righteousness sake but in that i remind you as things twist out of control more and more in our world today that we are never to make an enemy out of the mission field we, we may receive persecution for living in ways that god calls us to live fleshed out of a of a, a righteousness that have, has been realized in our our lives but we are never to make an enemy out of those that god has put us in the midst of so that's the second dynamic. We will be persecuted for it. Here's a third dynamic. We are to walk humbly in it. This takes us back to something I mentioned earlier, and it's seen in chapter 6, verse 1, where Jesus states there and warns us really against practicing our righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then we will have no reward from our Father who is in heaven. The, the warning here, just to be clear, isn't um, a warning against public acts of righteousness. I mean, after all, how could we be persecuted for something that no one ever uh, saw us do? What, what is the warning here is about the motive behind our acts. That, that our motive for living righteous lives isn't to receive the applause of others. To not be like the, the Pharisee and that teaching of Jesus who stood in the temple and, and to the public declared, God, I thank you I'm not like them, them, and them. Because I fast twice a week, I tithe, I pray three times a day. Jesus says, don't allow that to be your motive. To be seen by others. Don't have your motive be the applause of others, including in that, I would say, the applause that we oftentimes give ourselves. Instead, we are to walk humbly, where the applause and reward we ultimately seek is from our Father in heaven. A fourth dynamic, fourth of five. We will be tested by it. Now, what do I mean by that? When I say we will be tested by our righteousness, 
Well, I take that out of what Jesus says in chapter 6, verses 31 to 33. Just turn there with me. Let me read what Jesus says there. Jesus, talking about anxiety and worry, begins wrapping up in verse 31, stating, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Listen to verse 33, a well-known verse, but let's see it again. But, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And listen to the promise. And all these things will be added to you. Now, I go here to these three verses because they underscore the test that comes out of chapter 5, verse 6. What is the test? The test is simply this. Do you believe it? That's the test. And if you believe it, is it being lived out in your life? Do you, do you believe that if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, that you'll be satisfied? Do you believe it? That's the test. Do you believe that if you seek first His righteousness, that all of these things will be added unto you? Do you believe it? That's the test. And I'm not talking about whether you believe it here. I, I'm again asking, is your life demonstrating this belief. And could it be, by the way, all these things, when Jesus says all of these things will be added unto you, is it possible that all these things are added, as it were, by becoming less important as we seek our satisfaction elsewhere? That the satisfaction that we so often seek in things like what we wear, what we eat, and what we drink will become less and less important when His righteousness becomes all more satisfying. In other words, isn't chapter 6 verses 31 to 33 saying the exact same thing as Matthew 5, 6? Seek this and you will be satisfied. Seek this and you won't chase these things. Seek this and those things will become less important to you. Again, Wesleyan, do you believe this? That's the test. Going back to that conversation between Jesus and the, and the woman at the well, you'll remember if you've read that story before how, how it ends. Remember the disciples come back. Jesus has had this conversation. Woman goes back to her town to share about this encounter she has with, with someone. She says, I think this is the Christ. Disciples come back. They weren't with Jesus and they want Jesus to eat something. Remember that? They want Jesus to eat something. This is what Jesus says in John 4, verses 32 to 34. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. When, when I read that, my mind goes to the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, the temptation specifically, where in response to one of the temptations of, of Satan, Jesus responds, Satan, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you hear the test in that though? 
Again, the test being, do we believe that this is true? Do we believe that it's possible that there is a spiritual eating and spiritual drinking that is just as critical to our lives as the eating and drinking we most often think of? You know, when I consider uh, the teachings of Jesus on this topic in the Sermon on the Mount, um, and, and I believe this every time I, I study the Scriptures, and I, I hope you do too, the, 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 it's, it's important for us to, to realize that, that every word that comes from the mouth of Jesus is important. I know that goes without saying, but I'm talking about the language he uses specifically when he talks about this subject matter. I mean, I find it telling that Jesus doesn't merely say that we should want righteousness, does he? He doesn't say, blessed are those who want righteousness. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for it. I think that's telling. I think the language of Jesus is telling. And, and he doesn't say that we should make it one of our priorities, right? In, in Matthew 6. What Jesus says in Matthew 6 about righteousness is that we should seek it first. It, it shouldn't be one of the things on our list to do. It should be first on our list. That again, we shouldn't want it. We should hunger and thirst for it, why, what is he getting at? Why is this important? Well, let me see if I can illustrate uh, illustrate this. Um, when you go to the ocean, um, you want to go for a swim in the ocean, what is one of the first things you do before you jump in the water? Well, if you're like me, you'll go down to the water at the ocean and you'll kind of put your toes in the water and check it out, see how cold it is or if it's warm enough to jump in. And for some of us, right, that's where our swimming ends, right? If it's if it's too cold, we'll, we'll go back to the beach. Beach looks good. We got a towel there, maybe got some things to eat and drink and things like that. But that's kind of where we start. We put our toes in. But have you ever gone snorkeling? You ever gone into the ocean and just snorkeled maybe? Maybe you've been to a, a really nice place like Hawaii or Mexico or Australia and you put the, you put the gear on and, and you kind of float near the top of the water and, and the whole ocean explodes. Especially if you've gone to some places that are really beautiful. My, um, I've had opportunities to do that. And every once in a while you can kind of dive down, hold your breath, see some things, and then you quickly got to get back to the surface. But have you ever gone scuba diving? I haven't gone scuba diving, but my wife had the opportunity to go scuba diving when she was in Australia a number of years ago, and she said it was fantastic. Uh, the opportunity of going down, submerging into the water, not having to worry about coming back to the surface, being able to stay down there and go to places that even from the top with some goggles on you couldn't see. She talked about that being fantastic being fully submerged and being able to stay and check things out allowed her to see and experience things that the snorkeler and certainly the person who just dipped their toes in the water couldn't. What's my point? Oh, here's my point. It, it's been my experience over the years that much of the dissatisfaction that some express about the Christian life comes because they've only dipped their toes in the water or floated near the surface and watched from a distance. But hear me on this. Jesus doesn't promise satisfaction there. 
He promises satisfaction only to those who jump in and submerge themselves. He doesn't promise satisfaction to those who just nibble at it, but hunger for it. Not to those who sip it, but drink it all in. Not to those who just make it one of their priorities, but make it their first priority. That's why this language matters. And if you haven't yet not gone to those places, don't be surprised if you're not satisfied with the Christian life. Don't be surprised if you're not satisfied with Jesus. Jesus elsewhere states that your relationship with me needs to be akin to what? Eating my flesh and drinking my blood. Hunger and thirst. Eating Christ. Drinking Christ. And if we aren't ready to eat Christ and drink Christ, again, don't be surprised if you're not satisfied with Christ. He doesn't promise satisfaction for those who just stick their toes in it or float near the surface. But there's, again, the test for us in that. So we will be satisfied with righteousness. That's our first dynamic. We will be persecuted for righteousness. That's number two. We are to walk humbly in righteousness. That's the third. We will be tested by it as well. That's the fourth, which leads us to our final dynamic. We will all fall woefully short of it. This this last dynamic takes us full circle. If you remember how I began, I talked about the two senses of righteousness that's spoken of, spoken of uh, in the Scripture. Just to remind you, there's the ethical sense of righteousness, speaking of those things that we do, the right things, the godly things, the, those pursuits. But then there is the legal sense, speaking of who we are. I hope you remember that. I said that God is both. Makes sense. God is both righteous and he always acts in accordance with what and who he is. In fact, he is the determiner for all that is, is righteous. But here's what I said on the front end that I said was so important to us. I said that the same is to be true of you and me. That we are to have an ethical and a legal sense of righteousness in our lives. We are to be people who practice righteousness because we are righteous. But what's the problem if we were honest with one another? Well, the problem is because in our heart of hearts, we know that we aren't. Right? When when I talk about righteousness flowing out of me because I embody righteousness, doesn't take too long to to realize that's not true of me. And and, And the fact of the matter is it's not true of you either. It's not true of anyone. The Bible affirms this. We have all fallen short of God's definition of righteousness. Paul makes this clear in Romans 3.10 where after surveying all of humanity in Romans 1 and 2, he goes through all of humanity, surveys them. And in Romans 3.10, he declares after doing that, there is no one righteous. No, not one. There's not a righteous person in the world. There's not been a righteous person, save for Jesus, who has walked planet Earth. So no one is righteous. And therefore, not only can't we attain God's level of righteousness or the Pharisees, and we have to exceed theirs, we can't even attain theirs, 
The fact of the matter is we can't even attain our own. The, the reality is we, we fall woefully short of even our own standards of righteousness. And yet, please hear me, Jesus' words still stand. That if, if our righteousness doesn't exceed that of the Pharisees, we won't enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, goes so far as to say, you need to be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow. So what do we do this, with this? Where is our hope? And, and how could I ever say that our righteousness must flow out of who we are? Well, the answer is, and the beautiful answer is, it must be given to us. Our righteousness must be given to us. There's our hope. It can't be attained by us. It must be given to us, our righteousness must be gifted to us because it can't be earned by us, try as we might. That's the answer, but then that begs another question as we begin wrapping up. How can that be? How can it be that perfect righteousness, perfection, righteousness be given to us? How did that take place? Well, let me see if I can answer by having you recall the baptism of Jesus. Some of you are well-versed in the life of Jesus. You know about the baptism of Jesus. It was the event that, that really began his earthly ministry. Do you remember how it went? Jesus comes down to the Jordan River. John the Baptist, his cousin, is there. He approaches John the Baptist and he says, I, I want you to baptize me. And do you remember what John says in response to the request of Jesus? John says to Jesus, you want me to baptize you. You should be the one who baptizes me. And here's, here's the, the reality of John's statement. He's absolutely bang on. What John says to Jesus is absolutely right. J just remember, what was John's baptism? How is it described in the, in the scriptures? John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. But Jesus, sinless, perfect, spotless Lamb of God, had nothing to repent of. And so when Jesus says, John, I want you to baptize me, and John says, what are you, what are you thinking about? I should be the one baptized by you. Absolutely right statement by John. But do you remember what Jesus says in response? If you don't, let me read it for you. Matthew chapter 3, verse 15. Let John, let it be. Let it be so now for, and hear me, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then Matthew records, then at that point, then John consented. But here's, I like asking questions. Let's ask it a, a very appropriate question. How does the baptism of Jesus by John fulfill all righteousness? Well, the answer is it didn't. What the baptism symbolized, what it pointed ahead to, did. You see, what Jesus is saying to John and what he is saying to you and me is, John, I'm taking your place and you're taking mine. 
You're right, John. I should be the one baptizing you, but I'm going to go down instead in your place. And you will step into mine. You see, what the baptism of Jesus pointed ahead to was His substitutionary death three years later where in our place He went down into the grave and then rose up from it, which is what baptism is a picture of. And in so doing, listen to me, going to the grave and rising from it, in so doing, what did Jesus do? He fulfilled all righteousness. A righteousness that can can be ours. A righteousness freely given. A righteousness that Jesus not only gives, but a righteousness that Jesus Himself is. Paul describes this substitutionary work of Jesus this way in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake, God the Father made Jesus His Son to be sin who knew no sin. So that in Jesus, hear me, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. There's our answer. Not forgiven old people. Perfectly new righteous people in Christ. Jesus taking our unrighteousness into the grave, rising from it, and giving us His perfect righteousness in its place. That's our answer. And that's why I can say that our righteousness is to flow out from who we are. And so, as I close, how do we exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees? We can't. But Jesus did. And He offers His to us, and He again takes our unrighteousness in in its place. And what does He call us to thereafter? He calls us to hunger and thirst for righteousness because that hunger and thirst is for Jesus ultimately. What does Jesus say we are to do to remember Him? Of all the activities, what does He say to remember Him? He takes bread and He says, this is My body, eat this in remembrance of Me. What does He say? He says, this drink, this cup is My blood. Drink it in remembrance of Me. What does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? It's to hunger and thirst for Jesus. To taste and see that He is good. And when we taste and see Jesus and live our lives making that first priority, we will be satisfied. We will be satisfied ultimately and forever. What a Savior. What a Savior. What a promise. What a verse. Let me pray. And so Jesus, in response to Your Word, we, just, we worship You. We worship You. We thank You. We praise You. And and Jesus, we want more of this hunger and thirst in our lives. We want more of this desire, this, this, the, the living of a life that pursues You above all else. To live, to live with utmost faith and belief that if we chase You, if we draw near to You, as we eat and drink You, that we'll be satisfied. 
And, and what a time in this, what a time in the history of our planet to be talking about this when, when things that we chase so often are being threatened. One of the things that is not threatened is, is the promises that you've given us. And most importantly, the promise of never leaving us or forsaking us, but being with us always and is with us by way of the Spirit that you sent into us. So we praise you, we thank you. I, I pray as we reflect on this, we don't want to be mere hearers of the word, but doers of the word. We want to be those who not only build our lives upon your word, but live it out, live it out. Not just belief, but heart, fleshing it out in our lives. So help us, give us strength, give us more of you, more Holy Spirit in us, more joy, more love, more satisfaction in you, I pray. And I pray for all of these things in Jesus' great name. Amen.